I invite you to open your scriptures to Psalm 30. Psalm 30, you'll notice the inscription, it is attributed to David, but the setting of the psalm is uncertain. It could fit a number of different circumstances, one of which was David's sin in numbering the people of Israel, which is an, sounds odd to us that that would be a sin, but there was a warning in Exodus 30, verse 12, that when the people of Israel would be numbered, there had to be a ransom price paid. And so when that command was given at that point to Moses, it was really a warning that that thing should not be done. David disobeyed and in foolishness and pride commanded Joab to number all the men who could carry a sword. Joab tried to warn him. And he said, this is not wise. Actually, the text says in 1 Chronicles 21 verse 3 that Joab was very displeased with David his king in his foolish move to number the people of Israel. Matter of fact, Joab said this, may the, he said this to David, may the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Of course, we come to find out in the text, there were over a million people, who, a million men who could carry a sword and fight. Joab said, may a hundred times as many as they are be added. Are they not, my Lord the King, all of them my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? Even David's commander knew this was a sin. In 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1, it gives us this detail. It says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. And in verse 7, I want you to hear this, But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. It's a fascinating story. Through another man, through, David is given three options for this sin. Uh, for three years, there could be a famine. For three months, they could be defeated by the enemy's sword. Or for three days, there would be a pestilence or plague directly struck by an angel of the Lord. And so David, and I think God in his grace and mercy, and this is a beautiful picture of how God responds to us in our sin, through those length length of days he was making the choice easy for David and David said don't let me fall into the hands of my enemies I will fall into the hands of you and your mercy that could very well be the setting for this psalm the Lord punished Israel because of David's sin and killed 70,000 men because that's who David was numbering from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south Psalm 30 is a praise, it's a song of thanksgiving for deliverance from death. Two questions before we sort of unpack this psalm. Are you in desperate need of some kind of deliverance right now? Perhaps you woke up this morning seeing your own mortality through a very clear but fragile lens and your heart longs for deliverance from that thing. Secondly, we're going to see this in the psalm. Are you overconfident, oversecure in your current situation? A, a self-confidence that leads to pride and sinful criticism. Perhaps you're overconfident in your health or overconfident in your financial position even after we've come through a difficult 
coming through a difficult 2020, or in your own accomplishments, or confident that nothing can harm you so much so that you fall into judgment on those who are fearful as 2020 continues to seemingly unravel for them. Perhaps comfort and affluence have caused you to turn away from God as the object of your confidence and source of all blessing. No, you name him, you give him honorable mention, but in your own heart, it's really yourself that you're confident in. We've considered several psalms up to this point, as we do summer through the psalms, where trouble has threatened the life of the psalmist. Actually, in the psalm, you see that the psalmist is being pushed towards the mouth of the grave. Psalm 6, Psalm 16, Psalm 18, Psalm 22. Let me just read to you portions from three of those psalms. In Psalm 6, the psalmist says, and I want you to hear these words, because this is the situation of a real person. He says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. And then he's going to use a phrase back in Psalm 6 that is repeated here in Psalm 30. He says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? The psalmist in Psalm 18 says this, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried, for help. It's almost as if ropes or vines had wrapped around the psalmist and were pulling him down into the grave, and he can't resist it, so he finally just cries out to God for help. In Psalm 22, the psalmist says, You have laid me in the dust and left me for dead. And if you live life long enough, that'll be your personal experience. That'll be a fear in your heart. And God has designed that for a reason. Confronting death, either in our loved ones or in our own weakness, has a unique way of shattering the illusion of self-confidence and complacency. Psalm 30. Look at verse 1. By the way, there's five sections. The first section is the conclusion. Okay, so you've got to think of this backwards. So David has already experienced the deliverance, but then he's going to walk you through the actual struggle. It's a beautiful psalm the way it's laid out like that. So here is the conclusion. You have drawn me up. This is the answer to prayer. Verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for or because. Okay, extol means to exalt or raise up. So poetically, I want you to look at this in verse 1. I will Lift you up, why? For you have what? What's the next phrase? Drawn me up. Do you see that That sort of neat parallelism? So poetically he's saying this, I will raise you up because you have raised me up, or I will bring you up for you have brought me up, or I will lift you up because you have lifted me up. Why is David, why is the psalmist doing that? Why is he exalting God? And we'll see how he does that in just a second. Why? Because, look at verse 1, you have drawn me up. The picture is out of a deep, dark well where there was, there was, there was no possibility for him to, to climb out of that situation himself. Look at verse 1, you have not let my foes rejoice over me. Possibly, the context is David numbering the people of Israel 
And God mercifully did not allow his enemies to follow him for three months by the sword. You have not let my foes rejoice over me. There were plenty of people who would have rejoiced at David's early demise. He's praising God for this. Look at verse 2. You have healed me. Verse 3. You have brought up my soul from Sheol, from the grave. The psalmist's experience was he was so close to death's door, he was already moving through it, and he's able to say, you have delivered me, you have brought me up from Sheol, from the grave. Look at verse 3. You restored my life. Those are all reasons to praise God by lifting him up. Now that moves us into the second section of the psalm and brings us to probably the most well-known phrase in the psalm or the sweetness of the psalm. This is part two, and it's where he says, joy comes in the morning. Two verses where you see the psalmist praising God, not just for his near-death deliverance, but for what he learns about the character of God. The first thing, look at verse four, is that extolling God or exalting him or lifting him up is accomplished through two things. And so you can ask yourself, am I doing these two things? Am I lifting God up in this manner? Verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and what? Not only sing praises, but what? Give thanks to him. So when we gather together on a Sunday morning, when we sing, it's not just part of the service liturgy. It's not just something you know, where we're moving towards then the most important thing. When we sing and combine our voices together as one body, we are at that moment, if we're doing it from the heart, we're not just singing from our mind or singing because it sounds good or enjoyable, but with the right heart attitude, when you sing praises to God, you are lifting him up. That's what we're doing. And then we give thanks to his holy name. So if we, are, if we fail to be a praising people, and if we fail to be a thankful people, we are failing to lift God up. Why do God's people sing? Because we have learned something about his character. Look at verse 5. This is what we learn about God. And this is, this is beautiful. I would encourage you to put this verse to, to memory For his anger is but for a what? Moment. And his favor is for what? A lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night. And it does, doesn't it? In the middle of the night, you're pressed down by your own physical weakness or by your own relational difficulties or by your own concerns. Weeping does tarry for the night. But what comes in the morning? But joy comes with the morning. See, God's displeasure, even if it's the result of your sin, like David's numbering the people, God's displeasure does not have to be your final enduring experience. You can experience his favor. So our evening of tears, our long nights of pain can become shouts of joy in the morning. And this is actually, you're going to see the very last word of this psalm. Can you just glance down there real quick? Just look at the last word of this psalm because that's the main point. Okay, so what, what, what David is anticipating then, and we would put it in New Testament language, 
there will be a new morning, the very first new morning of a new creation that will wipe away all tears from our eyes and the remembrance of formal, painful things. That's where the psalm is moving. Okay, so that beautiful section moves us into section 3, verses 6 to 7. And David is actually going to take you behind the curtain, back behind his illness, and explain why it happened. God doesn't always give us an explanation for why we suffer or why we get sick. He certainly didn't do that with Job. And he doesn't always heal either. Paul, Paul pleaded with God for three times to, to remove something from him. And God said what? He said no. The lesson for Paul at that point was that he would understand that God's strength is made perfect in his weakness. Look at this section. We'll call it the illusion of prosperity. He takes us behind the illness and explains why. Look at verse 6. The psalmist says this, As for me, I said in my what? My prosperity. I shall never be moved. What was the psalmist's problem? What created the sickness or caused God giving him a sickness that was pushing him towards death. Prosperity had caused him to be self-confident. David was swept away with the illusion of his own military might and strength and, and the resulting security that came from that. So he sits there all smug and he wants to know how many fighting men he has. He sends them out, which is a possible context for this psalm. He says, I said in my prosperity... I shall never be moved. I shall never be defeated. I shall never be insecure. It's interesting that in the context of the covenant, the Israelites' self-confidence pushed against what God wanted them to know. Their self-confidence assumed that health and prosperity, wealth, could be attributed to human achievement. That somehow we caused that in and of ourselves because we were smarter or wiser or more intelligent. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 to 18 says this, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. That's exactly what David was doing. Verse 18, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. This phrase or this idiom, I shall never be moved, directly relates to other passages in the Psalms that make use of this expression. And it's an idiom that can either be positive or negative depending on the posture of the person's heart being described. For example, Psalm 15 verse 5. Is this positive or negative? I want you to listen interactively. Is this positive or negative? Following a list of righteous actions, because this individual fears God, the psalmist says, he who does these things, these righteous things, shall never be moved. Positive or negative? Positive. Okay, this is a positive thing, that the righteous will not be moved. Psalm 21, verse 7, it says, For the king trusts in the Lord... And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Positive or negative? Okay, again, positive. Psalm 55.22 states, 
Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Positive. Psalm 10, verses 2 and then verse 6. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. Positive or negative? Get negative. And, we're, and, and we, need to, we need to mark this because this is going to be very important. David could have said all three of the positive ones, but there comes a point in life where we get smug and complacent and we slip towards that self-confidence that says, oh no, I'm set. I shall never be moved. And so David says in verse 6 of Psalm 30, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. Okay, positive or negative? Negative, even though David had been living in the positive aspects of that idiom before. The key distinctive between the two uses of that phrase is the attitude of the human heart. One, in the fear of God, acknowledges absolute dependence on Him. The other, in rejection of God, seeks to exert self-control, a hyper-micromanaging control of one's own world. And by the way, this, this year particularly, with a pandemic and with, the, and with the restlessness of our nation, will expose your heart. It'll show you what you're trusting in. A false sense of confidence so easily overcomes those whose lives have been blessed by health and prosperity. And that, and that then describes most of us in here this morning. This is what sickness and enemies... And being pulled like vines towards the grave will do. It shatters the illusion of self-confidence that the house of mirrors has cast to you. And that is a good thing. So look at the tension between real and false security in verse 7. Okay, look at verse 7. Because David, David is going to tell you the problem, but look at the tension now in verse 7. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. Okay, that's a good thing. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Okay, that's the tension he puts forward. So God's person and favor are the source of true, lasting security. Now, God may hide his face for, for a number of reasons. The primary reason that the scriptures say, or the reason for which God hides his face, is sin. And that withdrawal of God's presence, okay, when it says you hid your face, that is intended to be noticed. We don't just push through that like it's not happening. You're supposed to notice it for a reason. The psalmist said, you hid your face, I was dismayed. That's exactly how God wanted him to feel. He wanted that emotion to be, to point him, if you would, back to a dependence on God. So now he's going to come to the prayer. In the midst of that situation, we move into the fourth section, and that is this realization of our mortality, of our weakness, of our vulnerability should lead us to do this exact thing. And I'm actually going to ask you, when I read this, to identify your own areas where you need deliverance. For some of you, it's a spiritual deliverance. For some of you, it's a physical illness, deliverance. Look at verse 8, because this is a plea for mercy. To you, O Lord, I cry. 
and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? And the idea here is him dying prematurely even before the number of years has been fulfilled. Or as Moses prayed in Psalm 90, um, that the average life is 70, and if by reason of strength, 80. So if you're 35 or 40 and facing a terminal illness, this is how you would pray. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. And you can pray that for deliverance. The psalmist closes with two final verses. After he says, is there any gain in my early death? Is there anything that could be beneficial or positive in this? He then closes with the two final verses, which will show you this phrase. Look at verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning, my grieving, into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth, my grave clothes, and exchanged them and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you for how long? Forever. So the key theme of this psalm, after we've just looked at it, is praise, specifically praise for divine deliverance. And the key word is forever. Look back at verse 5. His favor is for a what? A lifetime. Look at verse 6. David boasts, I shall never be moved. Okay, the the illusion of man-made eternal security, if you would. And then verse 12, I will give thanks to you forever. David moves to the ultimate praise of God forever beyond his fear of death and the grave. So this is important because of that time span. This is important in the face of a sub-theme of this psalm. And this is where we're going to identify with Psalm 30 specifically. There's a sub-theme about the nearness of death. Look at verse 3. Two words. Sheol and the pit. And they're very near to the psalmist's experience. Look at verse 9. Three words. Death, pit, and dust. Death before the fulfillment of our natural years is the disruption of a covenant God made even with Israel. Because death was the antithesis, if you would, to the promise. Let me read you Deuteronomy 30, verse 15. God says this. See, I have set before you today life and good death and evil. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. Did you you hear that? He's the source of prosperity. He's the source of health. So that's why we can cry back in verse 8. To you, O Lord, I cry for mercy. Added then to the nearness, the reality of death and the pit and the grave is another sub-theme, and it's an emotional response, and it is weeping in the face of that reality. Look at verse 2. I cried. Look at verse 5. Weeping. Look at verse 11. Mourning or grieving. And also the word sackcloth or grave clothes. Very real experience. 
Now I also want, I want you to notice the contrasts. Look at verse 5. Anger is contrasted with what? Favor. Verse 5, night is contrasted with what? Morning. Verse 5, weeping is contrasted with joy. Verse 11, grieving or mourning is contrasted with dancing. And verse 11, sackcloth, clothes of the grave, clothes of grieving, is contrasted with clothes of gladness. And here's the point. Only in God can you fully experience the positive aspects that come out of your troubles. That come out of being drawn towards the grave. That come, that come out of you realizing that you will, even if you live 70, 80 years, you will die. And that's why that, that key word then that ends the psalm is forever. So after God's merciful intervention, David determined that his praise of God would not be a single event or a single worship service or a single praise song, but it, would, it will continue then even beyond the grave forever. So in conclusion, I want to look at two men. Two experiences. There is a king, Hezekiah, who became mortally sick. The prophet Isaiah told him, now put yourself in Hezekiah's shoes. The prophet Isaiah comes to you and he says this. He looks you in the eyes and he says, this is what the Lord says. This is 2 Kings 20 verse 1. Set your house in order for you shall die and you shall not recover. Hmm. The next verse states, verse 2, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. A simple prayer that sounds very pious. Falsely pious. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. It's like the experience of Psalm 30. Isaiah goes, turns from him, leaves him that, that dreadful message, turns. But before Isaiah gets out of the king's presence, it says, before Isaiah had gone out into the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to him as a result of Hezekiah's prayer. And he says, turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. When Hezekiah recovered, he sang a song of praise that borrows wording from Psalm 30. I want, I want you to hear this from Isaiah 38, verses 17 to 20. He's healed. He, gets, he, he is gifted 15 years of life. And he says this, Behold, and it, this is going to sound a lot like David when he takes you behind the scenes of his illness, Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. That's the same thing David realized. But in love, he's praying this to God, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. It almost sounds as though Hezekiah has a copy of Psalm 30. The living, he says, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives, right? Forever. 
praise, lifting up, exalting God. What does that look like? Singing. For Hezekiah on a stringed instrument at the house of the Lord. See, God can still deliver from sickness and death. Divinely, miraculously. And sometimes he chooses not to. Either way, what we are supposed to realize is that death is not the end of anyone. It is a quick transition into eternity. In John 11, this is our second man. You have Hezekiah who is divinely healed and he praises in the spirit of Psalm 30. There is another man, Lazarus, and he did die. It's an interesting account in John 11, verse 1, it says, There was a certain man that was ill, Lazarus. By the way, Lazarus was surrounded by people who believed in God, who probably prayed for his healing, and God didn't heal him. And Lazarus died. Jesus plainly tells his disciples, in verse 14, Lazarus has died. And listen to what Jesus says. And for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So here's the setting. Family and friends had been grieving the death of Lazarus for four days. Jesus chose that man and that setting and death to teach his disciples something. Not to give hope to us that our loved ones will be brought temporarily back to a broken world, but something much bigger. He was using Lazarus to put on display his authority and power over death. The emphasis, interestingly, of the narrative of John 11 is on faith. That word, faith or believe, is used eight times in the Lazarus account. There is also an emphasis on Christ's work and glory leading us to the object of our faith, which is Jesus himself. And something that is overlooked is also in that narrative of Lazarus is an emphasis on Jesus' love. I'm just going to read you three passages. John 11, verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Love and death can be connected, and often are. John 3.16 says this, and you know this verse, For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his one and only Son. But listen to this. God's love is no guarantee that you will be delivered from eternal death. It is a fact that God loves you, and he gave his Son for you, but it does not guarantee that you will have eternal life after you die because Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is what? It is death. And there is a gift too. And it is the gift of God that is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's interesting in, in John 11, you, you see all these disappointments crowding in. You see sickness and the disappointment of Jesus' delay in getting there, and worst of all, the disappointment of death. But this is what we learn from that account, that God is at work in every single detail. Here's the purpose of the miracle, because John's going to say this in John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written, these signs, and, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead was the greatest of signs 
These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What exactly are we to believe? Go back, go back to the narrative of Lazarus. Jesus said to Martha in John 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the what? And the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus looks at Martha and he says, Do you believe this? And because of that truth, even though we know we will die eventually, Hebrews says, As it is appointed unto everyone that we must die, and after that, the judgment. But we know this truth, that we believe that exact thing about Jesus Christ, and though we die, we will live forever. And you go to the very last word of Psalm 30, and it is forever. We will praise Him forever. That's why we as dying people can gather here this morning, some of us sick, some of us weak, some of us, we've already exceeded what Moses says, the 70 years or even the 80 years, and we're close to the pit, to Sheol. We can praise Him forever. When you face your last enemy, which is death, you need a Savior. So listen to Jesus' words again. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I'm going to invite our music team forward. I'm going to read to you another passage out of John, John chapter 5, Jesus' words, and he says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but look, look at this picture, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Do not be amazed at this, Jesus says, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves, in Sheol, in the pit, will hear his voice and come out. And listen to the warning. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Again, Jesus' words, whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he what? He shall live. Do you believe that? That's what Jesus would ask you. Do you believe that? Can you praise God with the first couple verses of Psalm 30? And will you realize that even if death intervenes, because it will, can you then land on the last word of Psalm 30 that you will praise Him, even now, as a dying person, forever? And if you are in Christ, and we're about to sing this as a hymn of response, if you are in Christ, it's really not about you holding on to God and making sure you're never lost, because He holds you. Jesus says, all the sheep that have been given to me, I have lost none. He will not lose you. Are you safe in Christ this morning? Have you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sin so that you have crossed over from death to life? Let's pray.